So number 10, the essential purpose of marriage is to create stable families. It is not about romantic love. Marriage can follow, precede, or remain wholly independent of that condition. Just because two people are in love does not mean they marry. If people are married but not in love, this doesn't make the slightest difference to whether they're married. The essence of marriage is to sanction and solemnize that connection of opposites which alone creates new life. Whether or not a given married couple does in fact create new life is immaterial. Men and women can marry only because they belong to different opposite sexes. Now, as you'll see, that's a quote from an article um, by a Jewish writer in the Jewish Monthly Commentary uh, that's concerned with gay marriage. Um, I don't want to get into that discussion now, but I promise we will get into that discussion in when we come to Leviticus. Um, but more to see its significance with regard to the way that Genesis um, talks about um, marriage in connection with men and women. Because it's difficult for us, again, as usual, to get out, get out of our own cultural assumptions about a subject. And with regard to marriage, then our cultural assumption is it's about two, two people loving each other. And that's one reason why marriages collapse, because people assume that if the love disappears, well, well, why should the marriage carry on? Because the whole point about the marriage was in order to be an expression of romantic love. Uh, but that's... Uh, that's not how uh, it has been historically. That's an idea that's a peculiarity of Western culture over the past couple of hundred years. Um, it's, it's not been the normal view about marriage in history, and it's not a view of marriage encouraged by Scripture. Um, and, <clears throat> so, uh, and that explains something of the... Uh, well, link, links with the kind of preoccupation, or the, the nature, the form of the preoccupation with marriage and family that appears in Genesis, <coughs> which puzzled a number of people in their uh, postings about um, what Genesis has got to say about women. That, that you, we, we need to reframe the way we think about marriage, or at least to, to see that the way that Genesis thinks about marriage um, is different from, the, from our uh, usual cultural assumption in order to be able to see why it talks the way it does. Uh, there's a further, uh, and that's, there's a further, well, a couple of further theological assumptions there that the reason why Genesis talks a lot about um, men and women and marriage and procreation and family is both because that's important for God's purpose for the whole world and because it's important in particular for God's purpose um, in redeeming the world, in delivering the world. Uh, because the way that God is going to set about solving that problem that, that has been described in the aftermath of the flood story, okay, what's God going to do now, um, given that plan A hasn't worked, um, and that plan D is about not to work very well, as we'll see with Noah in a minute, uh, eventually God is going to get, need to get to plan C, uh, which involves working in the world by means of a particular people, um, and it means that within the life of this particular people, uh, the... The place of the growth of this family is of key importance. Now, uh, to us, it can seem at least weird and probably offensive that it puts so much emphasis on the importance of having babies as far as the women are concerned. Uh, um, but at least, in part, at least in part, that's because that's tied up with the way that God's purpose is designed to work out in the world. Um, and 
it may in that sense not carry, it may not be a, state, a, a timeless um, uh, statement about what to be a man, to be a woman, uh, is always to be, um, but something about the way in which God's purpose is working out in, the, in, this, in this context. Number 11. Our stress on God giving Adam and Eve free will is something we import into the text. The story says that God told them where they had free will, apricots, figs, whatever it was, you can have whichever you like, and where they did not, don't touch that one. God did not say, so you're free to decide whether to obey me. Now, of course, they were free to decide whether to obey God or not. They did have free will. But we need to see that that's, again, our preoccupation that we're bringing into the story. The story's focus is on free will in a different kind of sense. You've got that free will or that area. In this area, you don't have free will in the way in which the Bible thinks about free will. Uh, we are very, I'm not quite sure why, but we are very bothered about free will. Uh, but it's one of those many issues that we are bothered about, but the Bible isn't bothered about. Number 12. The serpent is a creature that talks. It's not Satan. Um, now, um, to qualify that slightly, uh, Gen uh, Revelation 12 or thereabouts uh, equates uh, the serpent and Satan and various other characters. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, uh, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 which is a neat bit of biblical theology for you. That is, it says, you know there are places in the Bible when it talks about the dragon? Okay, you know there are places when it talks about the, the serpent? You know there are places it talks about the devil? You know there are places it talks about, the sa about Satan? Well, I'll tell you, they're all the same character. Oh! That's called biblical theology. That is, that's, that's bringing together the separate themes from different parts of Scripture and bringing them into, into a relationship. That's fine. And you could therefore say... Um, uh, that the activity of Satan lies behind the serpent. Theologically, that would be okay as a thing to say. Uh, but again, if we're trying to understand what God was communicating with, uh, to people through Genesis 3, um, we confuse what the Holy Spirit was seeking to uh, communicate if we, if we bring Satan into Genesis 3. We make the whole um, the scenario work out differently from the uh, way in which it talks, in which the significantly, the temptation for humanity arises out of the world. <coughs> if you want to know about how, how, um, uh, how supernatural evil gets involved in the world, then Genesis 6 is, is a story about that. And lots of people want to know what's going on in Genesis 6. Um, The sons of man, sorry, the sons of God, uh, take wives. But have I to I've told you that there isn't really a, a word for wife, and it means women. So they took women for themselves, of all they chose, which might mean they married them, but of course it might not. Um, 
the only context in which the Old Testament, the, uh, the only meaning that the phrase sons of God has in the Old Testament elsewhere um, uh, is that it refers to supernatural beings. Um, in the New Testament, of course, sons of God can mean um, members of the elect, members of the people of God. And so some people have reckoned that in Genesis 6 it means members of the real line, of the, the, the line of redemption. And daughters of men means ordinary human beings who don't claim, uh, count as the line of redemption. But there isn't really a, a basis for thinking within the Old Testament for using the words that way, for reckoning that people could understand the words that way. It is also the case that in the Old Testament, the phrase, the Son of God, or at least that the, the Old Testament can talk to the sin. God, God can talk to the king and say, you are my son. The king, in that sense, is God's son in a special sense. Um, so uh, it's been suggested that the sons of God are royal uh, figures, kingly figures, princely figures, uh, whereas the, uh, <coughs> daughters of, the daughters of men um, are uh, ordinary human beings, the, 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 the women from ordinary class, as it were. Uh, but again, that's, that involves a jump from anything that is normally the way the Old Testament uses this kind of language. The only way it uses this kind of language of sons of God is with regard to supernatural figures. Uh, and so the story is one about uh, supernatural figures who come and get involved uh, with human women. Um, which is weird, but in one sense, high, um, it's easy enough, as it were, to imagine. Uh, that is, there are lots of stories in the Old Testament of supernatural beings who take human form uh, and who appear in the world. Um, somebody said, what about the fact that the angels don't have sex? Well, that's when they're in heaven. Uh, at least, so so the, at least it's possible um, uh, that, that when, when uh, a supernatural being takes human form, that that human that that person would be would be able to be involved in sex. Um, that seems to be that as far as I can see, that's the implication of the story. Now, uh, <clears throat> let me jump to what it's doing in in Genesis, and then I'll come back to did it really happen? Uh, what 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 you've got here in Genesis in chapters one to six is a developing trajectory um, of an account of the devastating uh, growth of sin in the world, which um, affects indivi individuals in the relationships between Adam and Eve, and then it affects families in the way it does in chapter 4. Um, and it's here it's come even to affect, uh, to affect the relationships between earth and heaven. Um, the story, it's an illustration of the way in which it's... Uh, unwise to split off Genesis 1 to 3 from what follows. Because the whole of the story from Genesis 1 to, through to the beginning of 6 is the story of how God created the world and how it went wrong in all possible ways, in all possible directions. And the climax to the story uh, of its going wrong is in this breaking um, of the distinction between earth and heaven. <coughs> Which a little bit like the, um, the Genesis 3 story in a way, it illustrates at least as much, well in this case entirely really, the, uh, the brokenness uh, of human experience and the tragedy of human experience and not simply the sinfulness of human experience. 
because the, the wrong in Genesis 6 is not a wrong on the part of the human beings involved. It's a, it's a wrong on the part of the supernatural beings involved. Now, uh, in kind of in brackets, uh, one of the th things that, another of those ways in which God is really annoying with regard to the questions that God will answer is, we want to know where, about the fall uh, of angels, the fall of Satan. And the wretched Bible won't tell us. Um, here in Genesis 6, though, is the nearest you have to an account, at least of the, you know, of the fall of, the fall of angels, um, which comes not before the rest of the human story, as when people think about the fall of angels, they think it must have happened before the creation of human beings. It happens afterwards and at the climax of the story of things going wrong uh, in the world. Um, <clears throat> and so it's leads into God's declarations about the nature of the world, God seeing that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Uh, God, God seeing how terrible things were in this world that God had created, including um, that the world in a, broad, in a broader sense from what we normally think, that is because it includes the supernatural world and not just the human world. Um, now, um, Somebody in their posting uh, sharply asked the question, okay, is this another of these examples of historical parables? Um, and um, maybe that's so. Um, I, I don't want to decide it must be a historical parable just because I think it's weird. Um, uh, and, but, and, may, and maybe the right thing to say is that with all these stories, we, 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 can't, we can't know, well, not just with these stories in Genesis, but, but subsequently in the Old Testament, and for that, for that matter, in the New. We often can't tell where the boundary comes between the facts that the um, camcorder would have caught if it had been there at the time, and... Um, stories that have been told, images that have been imposed, uh, put, set uh, on top of it, uh, symbolism that's been brought in, um, legends or myths that have been appropriated in order to bring home the historical, the significance of the historical story. Um, I, I don't know uh, where to uh, draw the line between things the camcorder would have, would have uh, caught and things that are parabolic in these stories. Um, and it doesn't bother me anymore um, because the point is God gave, God gave us this book in this form. This is the inspired book. And so this, uh, this vision it gives you with its account of how God created a good world, not a world that didn't have some things that needed sorting out and some bringing to completion, but a good world, and how then what happened went wrong in all these various ways in individual relationships, family relationships, community relationships, and in relationship between earth and heaven. So that God eventually reached a point when God said, that's it. But then subsequently said, but I'll carry on, we'll start again. I know about sin, but I'm going to now, but I am going to persist with this world anyway. The, the message of that stands uh, wherever you draw the line between, in, in, between what happened and what is stories out of the culture or something of that kind.
Um, the Nephilim. One of the things that's... Oh, no, the, the, before that. My spirit shall abide in mortals forever for their flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. <coughs> Excuse me. So why do these people carry on living for 900 years afterwards? Somebody sharply asks. And I think probably the answer to that is that um, what, it, what God is doing at this point is as it were giving notice about when the flood's going to be happening. Uh, okay, um, God's giving the world 120 years notice. He's not, not limiting hu the individual human life to 120 years, uh, but saying that the, uh, the flood is going to come in 120 years. Um, the, Neph the, the, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them. These were the heroes that were of old war warriors of renown. What's fascinating about that verse is the way in which Genesis almost seems to be avoiding actually saying that the, the Nephilim are the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. You see? And so if it doesn't know, or if it won't say, I'm not going to say. Um, uh, but it's, it's apparently, it's another sign of things being weird and distorted and out of, out of line. That's the significance of it. Um, um, so back to, my, back to my number 12, to see if there's things I didn't remember to say there. Um, Genesis 6, 1 to 4 then is closer to being a story about how supernatural evil got involved in the world and brought about terrible trouble. Um, and the earliest interpretations of Genesis see Genesis 6 verses 1 to 4 as the origin of sin, uh, particularly um, the book of Enoch, um, which is uh, an exotic uh, revelation that um, didn't make the Apocrypha, um, except unless you're Ethiopian Orthodox. Um, <coughs> but it did get quoted in the New Testament which is why the Ethiopian Orthodox have it in their canon, because they say, well, if it's good enough for the New Testament, it's good enough for us, which has a certain logic to it. Um, but you can find um, copies of the Book of Enoch in, in the library in collections of Jewish literature of um, what we would call late Old Testament times, um, and that um, do uh, in include a huge kind of elaboration uh, on Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. The stress on Genesis 3 begins just before New Testament times with the stress being on Adam rather than Eve as it is in Romans where Paul, stresses, Paul talks about Adam rather than about Eve. Um, the Bible does not explain the origin of evil or suffering. It does not explain why there is a serpent that tempts. It does not explain why Abel's sacrifice is accepted. These are questions we would like the answer to, but God did not see fit to provide them. What the Bible does instead is to focus on what God and we do with or about evil and suffering. Luke 13.4 is the story of um, the guys, uh, people come and ask Jesus about um, the guys upon whom a tower in Siloam uh, fell. And they ask, as people would do today, uh, well, were they especially sinful? Did 9-11 happen because they, those people were sinful? Um, do you think that because these Galileans, sorry, it's, it's different, uh, it's, um, it comes to Shiloh in a minute, if they, they, they first of all ask him about some people 
in Galilee, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. In other words, he'd apparently killed them while they were offering sacrifice. Jesus asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Uh, the question about theodicy is not a question to be handled as one um, requiring an intellectual philosophical answer. It's a question that better drive you into repentance. <coughs> Number 13. Headship of men over women comes as a result of sin in the world. It's not God's ideal design. We don't have to accept it just like that any more than we accept other results of the fall. And speaking of the fall, number 14, finally, finally uh, the Bible never describes the event in the garden as a fall. The expression comes from the Apocrypha, from two Esdras. Uh, Esdras is the Latin equivalent of, the, of Ezra, uh, and Ezra, the Esdras works uh, then are works attributed to Ezra, but were actually written in the context, in New Testament times. Uh, uh, one of the things they do is discuss the problem of the fall of Jerusalem. They are discussing, in a sense, the problem of evil. And so they are kind of um, put forward as Ezra giving you some teaching about why Jerusalem fell in light of the first fall of Jerusalem in order for you to help to come to understand why Jerusalem fell in AD 70. Um, and in the course of that, in 2 Ezra chapter 7, verse 118, um, Ezra says, O Adam, what have you done? For though it was you who sinned, the fall was not yours alone, but ours also, who are your descendants? <coughs> That's where the word fall comes in. Uh, and it got from Esdras uh, into the church fathers because the church fathers were a bit confused about which books belonged in the Bible. Uh, <coughs> and because they read the Bible in Greek, they read lots of other books in uh, religious, Jewish religious books in Greek that weren't actually in the Old Testament. Um, and Esdras was one of them. The, book, the, other, the books in the Apocrypha that, that we call the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical writings are, are books that were never canonical for Jews but became canonical for uh, most Christians post-New Testament times, kind of by accident, because they read um, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, which included these books that weren't technically within the canon, as well as the books that were in the canon. So that's how um, the fathers started talking about what happened in the garden as a fall, because Esdras provided them with this convenient um, image for it. And it is a convenient image, um, it's, very difficult to, it's very difficult to avoid the word for because you can't think of another word. I once invited a class to try to think of another word. And um, one of them in it, one, of, one person in the class suggested the change, which is especially funny because for my mother's generation, uh, that, means the, that means the menopause. <laughs> um, but somebody else suggested the train wreck, which I think is rather good. Um, the problem with it is 
that it, again it brings in a whole doctrinal package without you noticing. So as I put on the sheet, uh, the idea of the fall suggests that Adam and Eve were on high before they sinned in order to fall. But actually, Genesis doesn't say that. If anything, it implies that they were on the begin at the beginning of a journey. But the notion of, of, of a fall is important in this sense, that it is a way of declaring that there was something that happened way back then that skewed everything, that screwed everything, that screwed everything up. Genesis does imply that the, first act, that the first act of disobedience had devastating results for all other human beings, which is what um, Tuesda says. Oh, Adam, what have you done? For though it was you who sinned, the fall was not yours alone, but ours also who are your descendants. <coughs> which without the word fall is what, Rome, what Paul says in Romans 5. The first act of disobedience did have devastating results for all other human beings, as um, the New Testament puts it, in Adam all die. Not, not because we are somehow implicated in the guilt of that, but because once that's happened, it affects everything that follows. Um, so the fact that you all won, well, most of you won uh, in 1776, means that I lost, even though I wasn't there. Um, but the, the thing that happened back then has effects. Uh, the United States is free now because of things that happened um, uh, 200 years uh, ago. The things that happened back then have implications uh, for, for later. I got a question about that. Okay. Could you explain a little bit more about what, Genesis, what do you mean by Genesis suggesting it's the beginning of a journey? Like, how is that a beginning? Well, that they are, they're told to, they're told to go and um, till the garden, serve the garden. Or uh, they're told to go and subdue the earth. Um, <clears throat> they aren't, we aren't told that they are mature, or holy, or in close relationship with God, or anything like that. Um, now, we, we tend to assume that they were, and the word fall encourages you to think of that, but Genesis just doesn't say anything about the, the nature of things before. Um, and, <clears throat> and if anything, insofar as it gives you any ideas about it, they were at the beginning of their lives. They were grown-ups, but they were at the beginning of their lives. Yeah? Well, that's another, that might be another disadvantage of the word fall, because it implies it wasn't your fault. Uh, whereas it, it's clear in Genesis that they chose, they didn't fall, they chose um, to do what they did. So, yeah, that, that's an, a, another illustration of how um, the word fall is a misleading word. In, in Esdras, the context suggests that the fall notion is a fallout of immortality. Because it goes on, though it was you who sinned, the fall was not yours alone, but ours also who are your descendants. For what good is it to us if an immortal time has been promised to us, but, you have, but we have done deeds that bring death? Um, the, the, the fall notion is a fall from immortality in Esdras, which again has been a common Christian assumption. Um, though it then, that then produces you with something of a mystery with regard to what the tree of life is for. Uh, that is, the, the, the assumption is we were created to be immortal and as a result of sin we became mortal. We wouldn't have died otherwise. Now it is also hard to make sense of the nature of the human 
um, body of the of what we, how we are as human beings <coughs> on that assumption because it looks as if we there's something about human being about the human body the human person that you 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 are born you grow um, you're mature uh, then you go through weakening and senescence and whatnot and you die and to 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 try to think of of being human without it being part of that process is very difficult. Um, but but once you see the tree of life being there, then it all kind of falls into place, as I hinted earlier this evening, that that either just before you die you eat of the tree of life, or I can see the death demon coming, I could take take an apricot, uh, or whatever. Um, or um, you're given that afterwards, or some in some or maybe you eat it every day, but in but in some way the tree of life is the means whereby the person who is created mortal becomes immortal. The person who is created mortal become, gains transformed resurrection life. But the, the Greek assumption is an assumption about immortality, which got into Christian faith and is presupposed again by the fall notion uh, in Esdras. Um, yeah. Number 15. It's not clear that the covenant with Noah implies capital punishment. One or two people raised uh, this question. Um, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. For your own life blood I will surely require a reckoning from every animal I require, from it from human beings, each one for the blood of another. I will require a reckoning for human life. That's God requiring it so far. So if you um, take a life, then you are in trouble with God. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God made humankind. Now it could be that God is saying, I require you to um, implement capital punishment. Or it could be that, that God is saying uh, something like uh, what Jesus says when Jesus says, those who live by the sword shall perish by the sword. Uh, or it could be, to take that a bit further, as it were, that's how it's going to be, and I'm quite happy um, that, the, um, that the results of violence in the world will be more violence, and people will, as it were, execute my punishment. But that, that's different from deciding on capital punishment as an official means um, of um, uh, punishing murder. Um. <coughs> now someone thought there was a tension between that and what God says about Cain and I don't think there is uh, in, or at least in the sense that in a sense Cain is recognizing the potential um, of that dynamic anyone who meets me may kill me okay um, I'm going to protect you says, says God um, so I don't think that uh, there's a tension between the, the way the Cain story talks and the way that that bit of the Noah story talks. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that passage, does God hold animals accountable? Yes. For just killing humans or killing other animals? Or? Um, oh, that's a good question. <coughs> no, it's only uh, for um, from every animal. Uh, no, it's only uh, for, for human lifeblood that an animal um, is uh, held responsible. Um, and that lies behind what you might think is a strange passage in Exodus where it talks about um, 
in Exodus 21, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned. Um, now, this is not, the, the, the assumption here, the assumptions here in Genesis and in Exodus are nothing to do with, the respons- with whether you're responsible or something like that, with your free will or those kind of things. It's to do with the uh, offense that's been done, the, the objective offense that's been done uh, in, as um, Genesis puts it, the, the assault um, on the image of God in a human being. When you, when, when you, when you deface the flag, the United States flag, you are attacking the country. Um, when you deface a human, when you attack a human being, you are attacking God. Because as the flag stands for the country, so the human being uh, is in the image of God. Uh, number 16. Uh, in Genesis 9, <coughs> we don't know what Noah's son did. Uh, when it says that he saw the nakedness of his father. Uh, in, 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 sometimes in the laws, seeing someone's nakedness is a euphemism for having sex with them. But um, not necessarily so. Um, uh, so uh, the story doesn't make that clear. And as with, as with when Ruth disappears, disappears with Boaz... And you don't know what's going on there, um, because it's like a Hollywood movie of the old, an old school Hollywood movie where it all kind of uh, goes misty at that moment, instead of where you see him, see him you know, <laughs> uh, from the beginning. Um, it's uh, it's it's the the ultimate stories at this point are discreet, uh, as some people noted, uh, uh, not at other points, as in the Judith and Tamar story, for instance, but sometimes they're discreet. If it was a homosexual act, then it was also an act of incest, and it compares with the story of Lot and his daughters. Um, and it thereby, well, in any case, it, it, uh, the, the, there's, uh, in the postings, there was a lot of kind of um, angst or a sense of uh, in, in, in indignation about these stories. Um, and in one sense, that re- that's a really good reaction. The, re- the, the stories are, de- are designed, I think, to provoke indignation. Though I think some people's indignation was an indignation, it was almost something like, the Bible shouldn't tell stories like this. Uh, or, if it does tell stories like this, it should keep saying, and that was a bad thing to do. Um, now, this is, again, a cultural thing about, of ours. That the, we expect it to be pointed out um, that when things are wrong, uh, because we have this naive assumption that if you point out things to people that are wrong, it will make a difference. I had an email from uh, a student, uh, uh, another original student on a regional campus the other day. Um, I can't remember what the why she said this, but she said, um, why didn't somebody stand up um, and shout loudly that you don't have to be a Republican in order to be a, you don't have to be a Republican in order to be a Christian. You don't have to be a Christian. Being a Republican and being a Christian don't have to go together. Now, I apologise to Republicans present. You can turn it upside down. You can say you need people to say you know being Democratic and being Christian doesn't go together. At least in England, it was the case that 
It used to be said until the last third of the 20th century, I suppose, that the Church of England was the Tory party at prayer, which is roughly like saying the Church of England is the Republican party at prayer. And then, for whatever were the reasons, suddenly Christians started becoming socialist rather than Tory, becoming democratic rather than Republican. I guess, as has happened a bit in this country, so it just illustrates again how you always do things just after we do. Um, um, and he got stoned. Um, uh, uh, so, that, uh, so that it became possible to say, well, you have to assure people that it is possible to be conservative, to be Republican, to be a Christian, implausible though it may seem. Now, anyway, this woman said, um, why, doesn't somebody why don't people stand up and shout loudly that being Republican and being Christian don't have to go together? To which I replied, lots of people shout that loudly. It doesn't make any difference. The point is people don't listen. Uh, but she was thinking, and a lot of people in their postings, I think, were thinking, that if you tell people what the right thing to do is, that will make a difference to them doing it. And, and people then think that the reason why in the Bible you have stories about good and bad things that people do is in order to provide examples of good and bad things um, so that when you read the good things, the good examples, you will go and do them. And when you read the bad examples, you won't go and do them. Now, all that is wrong. The Bible knows that it doesn't make the slightest difference. You having good examples and bad examples, you will still follow the bad examples, not the good examples. Um, uh, but, it, but it's kind of relaxed about it because the reason, because the basis, the thing that lies behind its story, its conviction, its theology, is that thing that comes out again in, in, in that Genesis 8 passage about um, uh, because God seeing that the evil of human humanity um, uh, went back to the humanity's inclination is evil from youth. It's that God knows <coughs> that human beings don't do the, do good things because they got good examples, and that God persists with the world despite humanity's intransigent, humanity's wickedness. Now say hallelujah. And the, the point about these stories, then, is not to provide you with examples of what you shouldn't do. I mean, who needs examples like this to tell you you shouldn't do? And go, I mean, you know, well, some people do, but not many people need examples of that kind. But what the stories are there for is to say, okay, that's how grim people are, even within the people of God. And goodness, are we not reading stories in the papers every day about that being true, let alone finding it in our own hearts? And then what Genesis is saying is, and God carries on with us. God carried on with the world. God carried on with Israel. God carried on uh, with Israel's ancestors. God carries on with the church. And so you can read stories like this and be horrified, but not be overwhelmed. So, um, maybe it was an act of, in if it was a homosexual act, then it was an act of incest. Uh, and again, I think it's uh, another thing about that is that, um, uh, the, the, the fact that sexual abuse um, and incest are big problems in the church, as they are in society outside the church. Um, and how great that the Bible raises those questions, tells stories about that. Um, and wouldn't it be wonderful if we preached on them? 
or taught about them. So God did his best, as it were. The Holy Spirit did his best to give us the raw materials to have these issues out there, uh, but we usually decline the offer. It doesn't make it clear, um, as I put in on the sheet, wh what happened. The story wishes to draw a veil over what happened, as Shem and Japheth did. Uh, note, note that it's Noah who curses Canaan, not God, and that this has nothing to do with race in our sense. Um, and that's important because by some bits of spurious uh, logic, um, this account of the cursing of, Cain, of Canaan was made a basis for um, claiming the, uh, the subordination of um, black people to white people. Uh, it may seem an extraordinary big jump, but they did it. People did it. Um, when, you, when, when you're being puzzled, why should, why should it talk about Canaan as opposed to talking about Ham? Part of the answer, I suspect, lies in this consideration. When, when you're reading these stories, whether we're at Genesis, but also Exodus and onwards, you have to keep asking yourself, for whom are these stories written? Uh, I think it's very easy for us always to be focusing on what's going on in Abraham's life or in Lot's life um, or in Noah's life or whatever. But remember, as in effect Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the stories weren't written for Abraham. He didn't need the stories, did he? Because he got them the, the real thing. The stories are written for Israel. So it's worth always asking, what would this story, what was the function of this story for Israel, for whom God inspired the writing of the story? Why would God be saying something here about Canaan? Oh, well, then it becomes easy, doesn't it? Or at least to some extent. Here are the Canaanites um, who, who were uh, put into subservience to the Israelites. Uh, why were they put into subservience to the Israelites? Well, there's a variety of reasons that the Old Testament gives, but here's one of them. Uh, there's something by way of uh, a generational thing being worked out for Canaan, who is the ancestor of the Canaanites, that you then see illustrated in what's going on in Israel's own day. Somebody said it's in their posting that it was difficult for, uh, for us to, that the, this generational understanding of sin and whatnot was difficult for us to be able to kind of work with. Um, I, that's, that's, it's, that's true in practice, though it's odd that we find it difficult. Because you'd have thought that we see all around the evidence uh, of the way in which sin, uh, and for that matter, blessing, pays out through generations. Um, and you, you see ways in which children who, who have been ill-treated in families, that fam families uh, 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 and uh, children who've been in families that, are, um, that have been bad examples, that haven't, where they haven't been loved, where the, you know, and so on, you see the children growing up to be the same sort of people. You see the, the way in which the sins of the mothers and fathers are visited upon the children and the grandchildren within the families all the time. So it's, it's strange that we think, it's strange that, that the Bible portrays that going on because that's built into the way in which humanity works. It's built into the strange fact that whereas when, I don't know, horses or something are born, they're they are already ready to spring off and, uh, and um, live their lives on their own. Lots of creatures, at least that's true of. The human creature can't do that. The human creature is dependent upon um, uh, the, its uh, other human creatures for years and years. 
Um, and uh, so what we are is shaped by the way that we've been um, brought up in a way that is, isn't true for most creatures. Uh, and that has positive results and also negative results. Number 17, the theme of the Pentateuch is the partial fulfillment, which implies also the partial non-fulfillment of the promise to or blessing of the patriarchs. The promise or blessing is both the divine initiative in a world where human initiatives always lead to disaster and a reaffirmation of the primal divine intention for humanity. <clears throat> uh, the, the question about Genesis 1 to 11 then is, um, what's, um, is God's purpose going to be fulfilled? Is Genesis 1 to 11 good news or bad news? And David Kleins, for whom that's a quote, says rightly, only in light of Genesis 12 can Genesis 1 to 11 be read positively. <coughs> now you can see that, that point um, in, by another route, by noting the way in which Genesis 1 to 11 talks about blessing and curse. And I describe it as the story of blessing and curse struggling for possession of the world. Genesis 1, there's God blessing the world. Genesis 3, there's God is issuing curses. Um, and you get down that sequence of um, references. Uh, blessing and curse wrestling. You don't know which is going to win. Uh, and, and, and at the end of Genesis 11, you don't know how it's going to turn out. And only when you turn over into Genesis 12, where God declares um, to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred to your father's house, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. One who curses you, I will curse. And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. Do you, as it, do you know that God stays committed to the notion of blessing the world and that choosing the people of Abraham in particular is the way in which God is going to achieve that? Um, talk to you for five minutes about which of those um, convictions about Genesis 1 to 11 you think is important or trash or rubbish or significant or encouraging or discouraging or something or other. Go on, talk.
explain JEDP. Uh, you won't understand it, but don't worry about it. Um, let's, we'll see what happens. Uh, I want to start on page 51. I'm trying, every, every time, I'm trying it a bit different. I'm going to start on page 51, where it says at the top, the Pentateuch after JEDP. Because uh, I just want to take the, the top paragraph there. It might be helpful to, to look at first. The paragraph that says at the top of page 51, the Pentateuch after JEDP, how did people write books in the Bible's world? Uh, and here are four answers to, I mean, all of them true, different sorts of ways that people went about writing books, about which we can be reasonably confident, I think. First is by adapting and or expanding an existing book. Uh, and the example of that is Chronicles in relation to Kings. Now, if this is news to you, I apologize. No, why should I apologize? Um, but 
but you can, if you, read, if you read Chronicles, you can see that it's retelling the story in Kings, and it sometimes <laughs> um, leaves stuff out that Kings left out because it thinks that's irrelevant in a later context, and it sometimes adds new stuff. So one way or another, it takes an existing book and adapts it to a new context <coughs> by adding material and so on. Um, and those are sometimes referred to as supplementary theories of the origin of a book. That is, it's um, supplementing what was already there with extra stuff. Or number two, here's another way that people went about writing books, by conflating versions of books. Now earlier in the course I mentioned Tatian's Dear Tesseron, and I attempted to ask Jim a question, and he hedged. And I thought that was funny. Um, and it turned out he was trying not to embarrass me. Wasn't that touching? Because it turns out that um, not everybody now thinks that Tatian wrote the Dear Tesseron. Is that, that, that was the point, wasn't it? Yeah. And I didn't know that, so that's good. I learned something like that. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether Tatian was the guy who wrote the Dear Tesseron. The point is, the Dear Tesseron, which is a Greek word that means through four or something like that, um, is, is a harmony of the Gospels. It's the first um, turning of the Gospels into one Gospel. Um, so there you have the Dear Tesseron, whoever did it, coming, to, coming into existence by conflating four earlier versions of the story. And you have the same kind of thing. Where, how did Luke write Luke? Well, he took Mark and he took Q and he conflated them with some other stuff that he'd got. If you didn't go that, if you didn't know that, then don't worry about it. It's what the New Testament guys say. I understand, unless they've changed their mind lately. <laughs> well, they were, never totally, uh, they were never all agreed, but that's what most of them thought. You, you, when you're writing a book, you, you combine various uh, materials from different books, various existing books. Or, number three, you write a book by compiling uh, materials or fragments of stuff that never been in existence before, which, as far as we know, is how Mark wrote his gospel. Nobody had done it before. There wasn't an existing gospel of, uh, any, any existing gospels. Mark had got various kinds of stories. There were various kinds of stories around, and Mark put them all together. <coughs> and that's how Ezra and Nehemiah came together. There are various materials within the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Sometimes when, say, Nehemiah will talk in the first person and say, this is what I did, sometimes when somebody else will talk about Nehemiah. Sometimes there are things in there that are about situations before Ezra and Nehemiah were around. So the books have been compiled by bringing together fragments of stuff. So that's what are referred to as fragmentary theories, which sounds like theories about the books fragmenting. It doesn't mean that. It means a theory about the book coming together out of the uh, earlier <coughs> fragments. And then fourthly, you could imagine somebody writing a book by starting from scratch. Uh, as far as I can tell, um, the book of Esther must have been written that way. There aren't sources behind it. And likewise, John's Gospel might have been written that way. John's Gospel certainly doesn't use earlier sources in the way that Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Luke use, use Mark. So if you ask how did they write books in the ancient world, there are supplementary theories. <coughs> Take one and add to it. There are documentary theories or source theories put together various documents. There are fragmentary theories, take a load of bits and turn them into a new whole, and there is starting from scratch. The question is, what kind of thing is Genesis? There is the Pentateuch. Now go back two pages to where it says, to page 49, where it says, JEDP, how it came about. <clears throat> that is, how the theory developed. The Torah says that Moses wrote some laws and that Moses wrote the itinerary of the journey that the Israelites took to, to the Promised Land in Numbers 33. But the Torah as a whole is anonymous. It doesn't say who wrote it. 
From the Roman period until the, the late 18th century, it was an accepted tradition that Moses wrote the Torah, perhaps except the last paragraph. <laughs> Think about it. That there, there were learned discussions about whether he was inspired to write the account of his own death. <laughs> if, if Moses did write the Pentateuch, then it's easy to see how he got the information in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, except the own death bit. The question is, where did he get the information in Genesis? Because he, he wasn't there. Can we get behind the text of Genesis to the sources that Moses might have used? And two clues then surfaced. One is that some events in this story appear more than once. So, there are two stories of creation. There are two accounts of the reasons for the flood. There are two stories about God making a covenant with Abraham. There are two stories about Hagar being driven out. There are two stories about Beersheba being, being, being given its name and Bethel being given its name. There are two stories of God, um, God's revelation coming to Moses. Well, that might all be coincidence, but then <coughs> these, these pair, you can put these pairs of passages, you can treat them as a set of pairs, you can put them in two different columns, because they've got some different recurrent characteristics of which the uh, most famous, um, clearest, is that in each of those pairs, one of the stories will use the name Yahweh, and the other story won't use the name Yahweh. One story will use the, um, the, the ordinary name for God, Elohim. Um, one, one set of the stories will use the ordinary name for God, the, the ordinary word for God, Elohim. Another, uh, the other strand of these stories will use the special name of God, the name Yahweh, which traditionally was Jehovah, um, or, and, and thus you could, you could put as Yahweh. And that's where J is coming from. But then paragraph 4, when people looked at the, the stories that used the ordinary word for God, the word Elohim uh, for God, they realized that that material could be divided into two. Um, because some of it is more structured and formal and it's concerned with the religious questions like Sabbath and purity rules and circumcision. The kind of thing that priests are interested in. But others of it is quite like the Yahweh material in its general homespun style and its concern with everyday life. And what then happened, as a result of that, then you've got now three strands of material. You've got a strand of material that uses the name Yahweh or Jehovah, so that's J. You've got a strand of material that's the kind of thing the priest would be interested in, and that's P. And you've got a strand of material that uses the um, word for God, uh, Elohim, the same as the priestly material, but it isn't so priestly, so it keeps, the, it keeps the letter E for Elohim. So you've now got J and E and P. Now, um, paragraph 5, if you read on from Genesis and the beginning of Exodus into the actual laws in Exodus, and subsequently, you discover that there's also more than one collection of laws, and that these laws repeat each other in the way that the stories do. So there are several occasions about what to do about servants, slaves, several accounts of how to celebrate the festivals, several, three times you're told, don't cook a kid goat in its mother's milk. Really tempting thing to do, apparently. <laughs> Don't do it, it says, three times. 
<coughs> so it, if you put two and two together and you're not making 16, um, then <coughs> the existence of several versions of the story goes together with the existence of several collections of laws within the Pentateuch. And your only way towards reckoning that of those four choices of the way in which a book, books can come into existence in the, in the Bible's world, then the idea that there were several versions of the story, like there were several Gospels turned into one um, by somebody who might have been Tatian but might not have been, um, it provides the plausible analogy for how the Pentateuch would have come into existence. There were several versions of the story, several versions of the laws, and they were interwoven. I've just had the image in my... Did you, when you were a kid, used to... You know, when you interweave wool on a, on a, on a, on a cotton reel, you know, with nails in the top? No, obviously not. It obviously went out of fashion. Yes, okay, forget it. <laughs> well, it's like plaiting hair. You plaited hair? You... What's plaiting? Braid, you braid. Oh, I've only been here 12 years. I still can't speak the language. You braid. You... Okay, is that what braid... I wonder what braiding was. Okay, yes, that's right. So it's like, yeah, it's braiding. Braiding hair. Paragraph 6, then, the priestly version of the story talks about Sabbath and circumcision um, and um, clean and unclean foods. Links with the priestly concern of the laws in Leviticus, which talk about cleanness and uncleanness and things like that. There's no very explicit link between any material in Genesis and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a totally separate entity uh, in relation to all this stuff. The J and E version of the versions of the story link with the laws in Exodus 19 to 34, and they're the earliest versions of the story and the earliest versions of the laws. So now you've got J and E and D and P in that chronological order. J and E as the oldest versions of the story uh, and the oldest version of the laws. <coughs> D uh, is basically Deuteronomy, and P is the priestly version of the story, um, the creation story in Genesis 1 um, and so on and the priestly versions of the laws that you get in Leviticus. <coughs> so far, paragraph 7, we're talking about a written version of the story. Now, the J and E stories are much more similar to each other than they are to D and P. Uh, so the similarity between them has suggested there was, that there was an earlier oral version of the story and that would date from the Judges period between Moses and Joshua uh, on one hand and David. So you can imagine there being a story of, story of Israel that they got not long after they were in the Promised Land that told them about how they got there and things like that. Uh, and then when you got into um, the, the period after the monarchy, when the two um, nations split it into two, they obviously wouldn't, got, wouldn't, wouldn't want to have the same version of the story, would they? The guys in the north would want to have their own version. They wouldn't want to have the same version as the guys in the south. So that's how you would end up with two versions of the story. Behind um, that earlier uh, version, the pre-JE version of the story, there would be oral versions of individual stories. So you can think your way back into when there's, there's a story here about Abraham sacrificing Isaac, nearly sacrificing Isaac. There's a story here about Jacob and Esau um, and the blessing. Uh, lots of individual stories and they would gradually have come together. So there's a collection of Abraham stories, maybe, and a collection of Isaac stories, and a collection of Jacob stories, and so on. Um, paragraph 9. 
the heroes or the villains of um, of this the develop this, of this story of the development of JDP um, in the nineteenth century are Wilhelm de Vetter, <coughs> who fixed the date of Deuteronomy. That is, he <coughs> drew people's attention to the way in which, as I pointed out the other day, the kind of thing that Josiah did in his reform. Uh, when uh, he cleaned up um, the state of Judah after they found a Torah book when they were remodeling in the temple. The kind of thing that he did, if you compare it with the Pentateuch, compares most with Deuteronomy. And that has uh, always been the, lin the linchpin of a JDP kind of approach to the Pentateuch. The fixed point is Deuteronomy is the inspiration for Josiah's reform. And therefore, if the relative chronology is J-E-D-P, J-E first, D-third, P last. Then Deuteronomy helps you to fix the absolute chronology. J-E comes from before then, uh, P comes from after then, from the exile or afterwards. Um, the whole thing is put together then, maybe in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, Wilhelm Vatke uh, proposed a, di a developmental dialectical approach to Israel's religion, which is what then emerges from this story. You get a, a simple faith in J&D, you get something rather more legal in Deuteronomy, uh, you get something more ritualistic in P, you get the whole thing put together um, in JEDP. Um, Karl Graf was the guy who saw that P came last uh, in the earlier versions of the story they made the obvious inference that um, the first creation story was older than the second creation story. But actually, it's the other way around. Again, the same as the Gospels, you see. Matthew comes before Mark, but Mark's older than Matthew. Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 2, but Genesis 1 was actually written to be a prequel to Genesis 2. Genesis 2 wasn't written to be a sequel to Genesis 1. Graf was the guy, the guy who saw that. Kuhnen was the guy who saw that Jay came first. Julius Wellhausen, who is the great hero or villain of this story, according to what side you're on, was the person who synthesized and popularized the JDP scheme as a whole. Wellhausen is the, is the guy whose name is attached to it, but there was nothing very creative about Wellhausen. He was the guy who, um, whose name came to be attached to it because of the power of his synthesis and his popularization. Does it matter? There is a great, well, no, not a great book, but a book with a great title. Um, that's the most difficult thing about writing a book. It's, having, it's finding a title uh, called The Strange Silence of the Bible in the Church by James Smart. And he, he says this. Quite recently, one of our North American churches, which is in most aspects is eagerly progressive, but which had long delayed the recognition of critical problems in its approach to scripture and Christian education, introduced a new church school curriculum that was committed to deal frankly with historical and literary questions. At last, children were to be allowed to know that the two stories of creation in Genesis are best understood as something other than history. Two or even perhaps three Isaiahs made their appearance. But as soon as the new literature was published, it was met by a storm of protest and generated a vigorous public discussion. In one village, three men, prominent in the local church, were standing in the street reviewing the situation with some concern when a retired minister who had been their pastor many years before joined them. 
They told him what they were discussing and received from him the assurance that there was nothing really new or disturbing in the approach of the curriculum to the Bible. We had it all in seminary 50 years ago, he said, to which the immediate retort of one of the men was, then why in hell didn't you tell us about it? He had preached for years in the village church without anything of what he knew concerning a historical approach to scripture getting through to the people who listened to him Sunday by Sunday. He treated them as children. He'd been paternalistic. And when they discover, they're really angry. Um, that's something that the church in general has been good at, and it's something that evangelicalism especially, has been especially good at. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, we, it's important that we don't uh, flaunt before people critical theories about the Bible that we can't help them to integrate with their faith. Uh, and that's been a problem about seminary as well. Um, we need to, be, to, to help people to be able to see that seeing, for instance, that the Pentateuch was uh, produced by a braiding process um, is something that is entirely understandable as a way that God uh, inspired it. And therefore, it's okay to think about it and talk about it uh, rather than to uh, be paternalistic and let people carry on generation after generation in a kind of ignorance about how the um, Pentateuch came into existence. Um, page 50 is a summary of the implications of that. It doesn't say anything much extra, really, uh, over against what I've just been saying, but it summarizes the result of it. Um, at the bottom of page 50, there are some uh, internet references for, for instance, there's a neat one that um, gives you an analysis of Genesis 1 to 11 by, in different colors with the... Um, the J and P and D, uh, J and E and P in different colors. Um, and there's also uh, some explanation of why you shouldn't believe all that, but you should believe that Moses wrote it. Um, and then on page 51, there is some summary of um, theories of the Pentateuch that are being discussed now, post-JDP, in a context in which, in this post-modern post con context, and this kind of millennial anxiety, um, the, the world of scholarship wondered whether it was right because, and still does wonder whether it's right because it's all very inferential and you can't prove any of it. And so there are some examples mostly from nasty European people or Canadian people, anything rather than US people um, producing alternative views of how the Pentateuch came into existence which are even more worrying than JDP so don't say I didn't warn you. And I'm sorry I didn't say anything about the Pentateuch and women. Uh, well, I said, said the odd thing, but I didn't make anything, any comments on the postings. Uh, uh, but I will say something about that on Wednesday when we talk about um, Hagar and various other things there. Because it's time you went home, right? <laughs> Goodbye. I think I'll email you my question. Thank you. Uh, that's uh, very merciful of you. <laughs>